What we do here is go back, 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 back. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 Nodes. So this is, uh, this is Kimmy Culp, and this is her second time, um, her second time here. True. And, and in, in honor of this whole thing being uh, kind of raw and honest, I feel like I could either hide the fact that I'm a dumbass or I could just admit it to the world. And Kimmy came over the other day and I was all excited to interview her and um, like yeah, got on the computer about an hour before she came, figuring that was enough time and didn't realize that my operating system I had updated a week prior uh, meant that my garage band was new and I totally effed up and she got here and I could not figure out how the mics were recording and we did not do the interview. We scrapped it. So it was another of my no's in my 10,000 no's. And she was cool enough to not make me feel like a total a-hole and um, was very gracious. And she came back today to sit down with us. So thank you. You're welcome. And uh, lesson, uh, life lesson that, that I have come to know is that everything happens for a reason and when it's meant to be. And you can go back further. You actually don't even have to worry about okay. being so clear. Um, so that day, in the interest of being vulnerable and real, on the way here, I had gotten in a fender bender. Um, I, I, at this point, there's probably been a dozen in my lifetime of driving. And I also kind of had a scratchy cough. So I think the universe was telling us it wasn't the right day for the conversation. Um and it all worked out, and I'm here, and I'm happy to be here. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And you also didn't, you know, you kind of were very cool about not making, I I was mortified in front of you, because as you guys will learn, uh, Kimmy is a bit of a badass, as most of the people that I, I bring here. She's also cool, so she doesn't let you know that she's a badass, but she is, in fact, a badass. And to that end, hang on a second. I'm going to embarrass her because, okay, so here's the deal. We know each other through our kids, through the school. And so we got to know each other in more of a social way. I I didn't really know what Kimmy did or anything. And just we kind of uh, liked her and her husband, Graham. Um, and, And then you kind of start to learn things about people. And you think you've learned a lot of things about them. And then you get even surprised of all of the stuff that they've done. So I want to share something with you. That, okay, so Kim, okay, I'm just going to, there's, there's, a, there's a, a film called Gleason, which we're definitely going to get into. It's a documentary that is awesome. I am going to just like gush about it and it is completely authentic. And when I'm telling you, you need to just like stop this podcast right now, go out and watch it. And then you can come back and listen to the rest because it's it's really awesome. And we'll kind of get into it. I'd love to. But anyway, at one point, I, I, I watched the film and I said, anything I can do to help. And then Kimmy, a couple months later, said, can you be a mediator at this thing at the Arclight? And I was like, OK, cool. Send me over the bios. I want to know who I'm talking to, who I'm interviewing so I don't sound like a total dumbass. She sends me the bios, including her own. And I start to read it. And I knew some of this, but it's like it, it's it's kind of insane. I'm just going to go. 
I do these legal things so I could speak really good. Uh, Kimiko, uh, producer, has a unique specialty of generating original ideas and concepts, blah, 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 blah. She has worked for NBC, ABC, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and The Documentary Group. She has conceived and produced hundreds of stories around the world, blah, 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 until 2011. I'm sorry, I'm just, but the executive director of talent and development at OWN, Oprah Winfrey's network. She's a little you know, person in media. Uh, she oversaw series and specials, including blah, 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 all these very important things, right? Uh, clients included people like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Kaiser Family Foundation, Alicia Keys Foundation. Then I get to this part and says, <laughs> so all of that stuff, I kind of knew she, she was, you know, in, in broadcast journalism, uh, and then I get to this part. Kimmy is the co-author of the best-selling book, A Letter to My Dog. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you don't even, I mean, do you have a dog? Like, you know, her book has sold 80,000 copies around the world and is published in three languages. I'm like, what is going on? I, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me, one, how prolific you are, and two, how unassuming you are. And I, I think Graham is the same way. Like, it's like, you guys just have a, an air about you that's so, it's just like, I, 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 I just love it. It says you're very humble and you're very hardworking and you really care and you really have your heart in the right place. And I've seen you volunteer at school. I've seen you, you know, the, the, the giving foundation that you told me about that we got involved with. Uh, so just hats off to you, first of all. Thank you. And then I guess, and, and, you know, I have to ask you some questions. So let me, let me um, start with what was it that originally kind of like veered you toward storytelling? Uh, like what, what were you, um, like growing up, were you into, were you always someone that was like filming things and were you ever like interested in being on camera, that kind of thing? Or were you just always interested in, in like, I want to tell this story or when did that kind of come about? Um, I remember actually sort of the definitive moment um, when I became passionate about it and it clicked in my head that it was something um, that I wanted to do. And I can't remember. It was it was one year in high school and we had an option within a class to do a report and present it. Um, but you could use multimedia. So you could use photography and video, um, which at that time, I think at a large public school was pretty cool of the teacher, right? Right, right. To, to open it up and say it's not research. And, um, and I ended up, and I don't remember how it came about, um, I was growing up in Santa Barbara and there was a, essentially a, a hospice at the time HIV and AIDS was a new conversation, a new narrative. I remembered uh, Magic Johnson being diagnosed. It was all over yeah. the news. And I had heard about this this home where patients were living and some dying of HIV AIDS. So I decided to do my report and present it to the class and I, an old school video camera. I don't even know what they looked like yeah. back then. Yeah, went like... and had some conversations um, and showed the video on the projector as part of the class. And I think at that point, um, the as you know, you just shared with this podcast for somebody who is innately curious and is a people person, 
that sort of sparked something within me that sharing other people's story, not only was it meaningful and interesting for me, um, but that there was power in that. So that was the first moment that I remember. Did you get a ton of reaction from were classmates? Like, whoa, I don't Kimmy. remember. Or I like don't the remember. Teacher. I had yeah. no idea what my grade was. You just remember the I doing remember, of it was awesome. I remember the doing of it and that it, it sparked something within me. And so I chose broadcast journalism um, is a major, as a major and, and went into college with that focus. And did you, you didn't go to Colorado originally, right? Didn't you go somewhere else? Uh, I went to SMU. SMU, okay. Which was very Southern. <laughs> <laughs> I was coming from Southern California and I showed up in like jean shorts and, you know, a t-shirt and flip-flops and a ponytail <sighs> And these girls were dressed from head to toe, you know, super fancy, uh, a Southern formality. Mind you, she has married a Southern gentleman, Graham <laughs> Cope from North Carolina. Yeah, but he's laid back and had shaggy hair when I met him. Um, so, it, it, you know, that was a tough year, I think, for me. Yeah. Um, just one year, just freshman year? Just one year. And I went to Boulder that summer to go to summer school and... Uh, I I was like, this is where I meant to I'm meant to be. I'm staying, and um, yeah, um, it was absolutely the right decision. You know, some of my best friends in the world, and love of Colorado and the mountains and and nature. So it was a good fit, but there was a little bit of a course correct. L- let me Dallas. ask you something because you just well, that's funny. You you just sparked something in me that um that I just remember for myself. What when you were there freshman year. Did you have like a pit in your stomach feeling like you're not in the right spot? I felt out of place. Yeah. And I think um, I felt socially insecure. Yeah. And um, it just, uh, uh, you know, I I still have great friends. And and looking back, there was a lesson in that. Um, But yeah. You kind of knew on some level. Because I'm just thinking as you're saying that, I, I did not. I went to Boston College undergrad. Like my thing is a little high. Hold on. Um, and I I went to BC undergrad, but I I was in um, in the Facebook of UVM. Like I was in there, you know, they called it like the meat book or whatever. Uh-huh. I went to some orientation at UVM. It was they did it like early in the spring, so they did it before I had my my senior prom. And I remember going there for the weekend and my mom was with me. It was like, we, I went up and I and I was there and I just remember walking around and everybody I know that's gone there says, amazing school, such a great time. There was something in my gut that I was like, I literally left that weekend. Maybe it was that I didn't finish high school. Yet, like I didn't have my prom. I didn't have closure yet. I said to my mom, I'm not going there. And I was waitlisted at BC and my brother went to BC and I never wanted to go. Like there was a one thing my dad was like, maybe just do an application there. And I, and immediately after UVM, I was like, I'm not going there. I'm going to BC. I'll do whatever. I'll do night school during the day. Yeah. And then I ended up getting in and going there. But it was this thing in my gut. I'm just asking you because I remember specifically going like, I'm literally saying, I'm not spending four years of my life here and listening to the gut. And it's, I don't know if that was kind of, yeah, I mean, That's I dramatic. Th- or- I, yeah, I think I, I, I went there. I moved from Virginia 
to Santa Barbara, um, looked at a bunch of different colleges. The one trip I took with my childhood best friend was to SMU. And we sort of said, let's do this together. Um, by then, she had lived in Oklahoma, and she sort of has much more of the Southern formality and pedigree than I than I do. But it just, um, it wasn't me. And I think to this day, as I'm sitting here in a baseball hat and <laughs> tennis <laughs> shoes yeah. and... Um, and that it wasn't um, the, the the right fit. Um, but it led me to Boulder, which, you know, I go into that later, but I really attribute Boulder, you know, not only to leading me to go on um, a trip abroad where I would meet my now husband, who I have three kids with, um, but also was um, began my career in journalism um, as a result of, Being a journalism major and our professor, who I had formed a great friendship with, was one of the first 10 producers at CNN. And she had left her um, career in Atlanta to become a professor at Boulder. Ah, And There's always a mentor. There's always always a mentor. Yeah. So um, Vicky Salma. And we're sitting in class close to graduation. And she comes in and says, there's a hostage situation outside of Denver. CNN was launching student bureaus, and they had tapped us as a potential student bureau. They were actually airing, but we had not done any work for them. Um, It was in development. So Vicky comes in, says, there's a hostage situation. They've got a bunch of people on a plane, but this is going to be a big story. They want us to take our cameras and go. Um, So she puts four of us in her car, and we arrive at Columbine. And we are... Wait, I just worked with a girl who grew up right near Columbine and was telling, that's so crazy, it's coming up again today. Literally yesterday talking about her. So go on, sorry. (laughs) So so we are literally, when I say first on the scene, I mean the first responders, you know, by the end of the day, the national media and then eventually the world media was, you know, transcend or, you know, sort of taking over the space and, you know, there was barely room for the cameras. But when we arrived, it was really local reporters. Um, I was positioned at a separate school where parents were gathering to get information from local law enforcement. So a lot of these parents that was still going on, it was, um, they didn't know. And that was the reuniting place. So we had um, cameras and were interviewing um, these parents. Um, so it was, cr- it was crazy. My sister was just out of college and her friend was working at a radio station. All of a sudden I was doing like an interview, a college kid, you know, yeah. like reporting for a local station in San Francisco. Um, so eventually CNN, the real producers, obviously that was not us, <laughs> arrive on the scene and, asked if we would stay as interns because the story was so, so big, big in 24 yeah. hours. Um, so I uh, ended up staying for, I don't know how long it was, probably about 10 days. Holy crap. How old are you? What year? This is Sen- just about to graduate? Senior year. like Before or after graduation? Right about, uh, super close to graduation. Wow. Um, and then that... CNN, we worked hard. 
asses. I mean, it was feeding the producer, you know, getting pizzas and looking through yearbooks and, you know, standing aside the correspondence and having all the yearbooks. And um, so the work of an intern, but in this huge and and catastrophic and devastating story. Um, So at the end, one of the CNN producers said, you know, there's this thing, they called it VJs, which was like, video journalist, or I can't remember, which was a program that you could work through CNN and all the different divisions. Um, And Graham, who's now my husband, was in Washington working on Capitol Hill. And they said, move to D.C. and we'll get you a VJ position. Like, you know, you've worked with us. We know, you know, that, that you can handle it. So I go to Washington, show up for the interview that they've set me up with. And I have Vicky supporting me and these guys from Atlanta. The woman's just like, we don't have anything for you. I'm like, didn't move to New York. (laughs) I came here. (laughs) My bags are unpacked because originally I thought New York and I would go back and forth for my boyfriend. Um, But the one, two of the job and and Graham brought me to Washington. And so I ended up... um, getting a job on Capitol Hill, which I had zero interest in as an intern. And I would go out every day because the cameramen um, are always in front of, you know, the Senate Hart building and constantly national news, nightly news, all those places. And I would hand them my resume and bring them coffees. (laughs) And eventually one of the cameramen said- While you were doing this other job, you would go by to- At lunch. At lunch. Because they were always gathered outside the Senate Heart Building. That's awesome. And they would, um, they were big local, you know, it was CNN, it was Meet the Press, and they were there to get sound bites from the day's news, political news. And so I would give them my resume and bring them coffees, like, all the time. How long? Um, Months? Probably a month or two. And then, And (laughs) pretty much, like, they all knew me. You're would, like, you're like, you know, that's like a story out of the West Wing or a newsroom. Or like, you know, like, keep going, keep going. They're finally like, give this girl a fucking job. You know, yeah. like, that's awesome. So one so of them what, said. Did you know when you were working there, you're like, I'm not doing this. I'm doing that. You basically knew. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, that I. was just a placeholder. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't really have any connections outside Vicky and CNN. So what that led me to was one of the cameramen eventually said, there's desk assistant program, which is the same thing as the CNN program at NBC. We have the Washington Bureau. He worked for Nightly News, and he said, I'll give your resume to the bureau chief. You know, they hire new people every 18 months. And that was how I got the interview and started as a desk assistant for, I think it was $15,000 a year doing the overnights. That was at CNN? It was NBC. NBC. Okay. So we were, um, it was Tim Ressert's bureau. So we did okay. Nightly Today and his Meet the Press. His son went to BC. He's, he's supposed to be a great guy. Amazing yeah. guy. From Buffalo, I think, right? Uh, uh, yes, sure. Buffalo, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, uh, well, so so I want to go further with this, this trajectory because I didn't know it, but I also want to go back to Columbine because that's such a, you know, I was in New York City for 9-11 and that's something I'll just never forget. And anybody who was there, I don't know where you were on 9-11, but um, it's just, it's one of those things you can't get out of your head. It was so surreal. And I'm guessing Columbine probably had that kind of element for you or was it so 
work oriented that you like, did you know, were you like, wow, I'm in a shit storm. And this is like something that's it, to me, it would, that was like one of those, like, that's a, it's, it's a conversation stopper. It, it's, yeah. it's so good. That Newtown, 9-11, you know, th- these are, how did you kind of like process that whole thing? Well, I would say that's was one of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. That was going to be my next question. And you have to have a level of distance, especially when news has a tendency to be so catastrophic and heartbreaking, which that story was. I think how it can serve you is um, so much of it. And a big part of being a producer is being out in the field, developing relationships, doing interviews that you feedback for the anchors, sound bites. When you are emotionally invested, people pick up on that. Yeah, I think there's journalists who are hustling to, you know, move up the ladder and you get the scoop. And um, so I think it served me and it also took a toll on me. Yeah. Um, and part of why I eventually left news in particular was because the content um, was almost too much. Was too much. Yeah. 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 I would imagine. I mean, I don't know how people do it. I remember I thought, you, you know, watching the news 9-11, that's what I remember being struck by was like, how are they all keeping it together so well? And they still had emotion. You could see because it was so huge. Yeah. And that happens with these big stories. And I'm not particularly a news watcher. I mean, I, I feel so ignorant. I'm like, you know, sometimes scared to talk to it's someone like you. Who's re- <laughs> I don't yeah, watch you know, it that, either. That's my yeah. thing. It's like, I feel guilty about it and like ashamed of it on one hand. And on the other hand, it's almost like I do it because I'm uh, like to protect myself from seeing all that's on the news. It's like so negative barrage a lot of times. Um, but, but what I'm, that's interesting to hear like that for you as a young kid, like, you know, not even out of college yet. Yeah. And dealing with that. Now, I also think there's a different perspective now. We're both parents thinking about Columbine. Totally. But still, when you're that age, any age, that was such a an awful occurrence. I, it's like, how do you even like, you know, it's just weird. Even just to ask you, like, in a, in a weird way, that was... You know, career-wise, that was such an that was like the you know uh, I was just talking about this with Siri Lindley about the um, Malcolm Gladwell uh, outliers, and he mm-hmm. talks about like opportunity to be around something, and then and then you get that you get the opportunity, and then you have the work, and it's like this was a huge work opportunity for you, and yet it's a huge tragedy yes. for the human race and for you as a kid to have to see it. So it's yeah. a weird mix of all these kind of emotions, I'm sure, that surround that for you, you know? Yeah, and 9-11, by the time 9-11, and I was 25, I was a child bride, married at 25, and knew, just back from my August honeymoon. But I was working as a researcher for an amazing correspondent, and what a blessing to have him as my first kind of real boss. I was immersed with Bob Hager. And Bob is a very iconic aviation reporter, aviation beat, his relationships with the NTSB and FAA. So any air crash that sort of happened within the 40 years of Bob was the one who, you know, 
Um, so anyways, I was working as his researcher. We're a three-person team. It's Bob, his producer, and I do the research. With it, that point, some of it was still clipping, like, New York Times articles. Huh, um, changed a lot. Yeah. Changed, yeah. We were just starting to... Um, so I got the call. I was in the shower. Graham said, a plane just crashed. You better get to work because that was my job. Like if there was a plane crash, we covered it for all of NBC for today's show for nightly. Um, And the long living at that point, Washington, DC. So the long story short is um, the newsroom was in such chaos and um, like nothing I had ever seen before. Bob was driving to the Pentagon like not available, like on his self, you know, cameras are scrambling. Um, and the newsroom, Tim Russert comes out and silences the newsroom. So there's something called top lines, which was in the computer system, somebody would report something, which you could only do in a certain level and rank. And once it was second source, it would go red as a top line. And it was reportable because MSNBC was happening. So breaking news, you have to go like that to get it first. So top lines were sort of how they worked that out between all these bureaus around the world. So Tim Russert said, the top lines aren't going to work. If you have something that needs to go to air, stand on a desk. This is in a newsroom. And I am on the FAA call which Bob should have been on, but he's at the Pentagon. That's like so out of and mind. And you didn't know because of the, what was happening at the Pentagon. Did you even know that he was? Well, okay he's calling in. About, there's oh, just oh, oh, there's okay. chaos at yeah, every level. Yeah. Oh, but they're on. like, she's on the aviation team. You know, she's his researcher. We're putting her on this call, but certainly not in a position to be reporting news to the country. And the call, the chaos is on the call and and all the information and we're hearing things that are just horrible like that there's communications from planes to airport towers and and um stewardesses are being held there's just a lot of confusion and some accurate and some not and um there was a reporter for the new york times who bob trusted and they had a great relationship and matthew came on and said you know this is matthew from new york times can you confirm that there is a national ground stop? And they said, yes. All these reporters said, what is a national ground stop? Because it's never happened. Every plane in the country will be grounded. And so I'm like, stand on the desk. So I stand on the desk, like Tim Russert is, they like silence it. I'm like, there's a national ground stop screaming. Everyone's like, he's like, what's a, I'm screaming it. He's going. And you're 25. 25. He's and they're going to, to air. So anyways, to go back to your earlier conversation, certainly a moment I'll never forget and how quickly the news was moving his leadership and figuring out a solution to get as accurate of information and as quick as a fashion and possible as possible was remarkable. Um, But then they moved us sort of back to our lower tier position, which was video intake. And what you did is you sat in the basement and live video comes in. So they stream it. And the reporters are editing with their producers next to them, their packages, turning them around for today's show, nightly MSNBC. 
So your job is with headphones is to log everything. So the sound bites are written out. You highlight when there's a piece of video that you feel is really compelling. So you're in video intake with headphones, transcribing and hope identifying at that point in your career, you know what a good soundbite is to move the process quicker. And so they get the transcripts. So I did that for about, I don't know, a week, and we were working crazy hours. Right, front starting on 9-11 to, to or, or, yeah. We were, I, we were working crazy shifts and sleeping there. Back to the point of the story, what I eventually realized is you said watching the news for 12 hours oh. to watch. For, and looking for. But hearing every interview that they're doing in New York in its entirety and seeing the footage over and over and over. And, you know, there was two rows of us doing that, but we consumed 12 hours a day. Oh, my God. um, Of that. Of that. Watching the crash over and over. And, um, you know, I don't know what that age... it, no, I mean, I know I comprehended it. It's almost it. like PTSD you have from that. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I have it. There no, are people no, who, who like, witnessed it, but but you can't you can't be a breathing human being and, you know, not have that impact that. you. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, catastrophic story. Lots of amazing, uplifting stories. Yeah. Um, but those big ones sit with you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and nine eleven. I can only imagine. I mean, for for me, it was it was you know such a different experience because I obviously wasn't working in news, but being in New York City, uh, Deirdre was working in Midtown. My brother was working in Midtown. My brother's wife was working in Midtown. I was on eighty second and first, and I don't have to go through the whole story because this is your interview. But I will. I will just give you. Deirdre's dad was working downtown at the World Financial Center. We didn't hear from him all day. You know, We his, her uncle, we didn't even realize, was in the 77th Tower. Two guys I bartended with passed away that day. They, oh, were, they were 100. I, I mean, it was I like you, we had all these guys that worked at the bar where, where I bartended that were firefighters. And I thought that morning, I remember thinking, someone that we know is, is not going to make it. Uh, it. Amazingly, out of all the firefighters that I know, some of them, one of the guys I worked with every Thursday night had a really harrowing thing. He lost his his chief, but he, he survived, but his eyes were, he, he didn't work after that. But it was two guys that I bartended with that were uh, working, you know, like one was Cantor Fitzgerald, one was uh, KPW and these great guys. And they were, you know, 33 and 31 years old. And it's like everybody who lived in the city had the, you had this story. And, and there's, I, rem- I worked that night, I'm getting goosebumps. I bartended that night because the, the bar stayed open and we had the windows wide open. We had an American flag. It was such a surreal thing. There was like nobody in the bar and we had CNN on on every channel. And literally, there was a woman that came in. We had like a week of people coming in. There's like not many people in the bar. Yeah. But this woman came in and sang the the national anthem at the end of the night to like five other patrons. It was just bizarre otherworldly experience that, you know, changed me and everybody else. And I would imagine changed you in some profound way that's Well, I think the thing that's interesting about um, tragedy um, of that scale, which as a journalist, that's your job to dive into the middle of it, is that there's always 
beautiful things that come out of it because it sort of immediately shakes everyone to the core about what matters. And I've heard, you know, which I'm, you're sharing stories in New York of everyone coming together and these, a connection that didn't exist normally within that busy, yeah. active city. And, um, and I, I, I experienced that in, in Washington, you know, people coming together and, in bars and restaurants yeah. and sort of just wanting it was to, so, hum- it was beautiful in, yeah. a, in a weird sense. And um, Katrina was the same way. I remember that some of these stories of people and what they did for strangers and their neighbors. And when they opened the French Quarter and, you know, people were playing instruments and, you know, we were walking through and some bars were just had candles because electricity wasn't back and people were together and communing. And so I I do think that, um, it you know, startling reminders of what matters most and the mm. way that um, this country in particular rises together is 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 beautiful. Yeah. Um, not that you, wanna, you, you want any of this. It. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you do, you want to be able to somehow remind people of that without having a tragedy. Of course. Do it. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of human nature. I mean, I remember, I remember thinking that day life will never be the same. Like I was like, well, I'll never act again. Cause no one will go to the movies again. I yeah. was so naive before nine yeah. 11 about terrorism that when the plane went into first tower they were like oh it's from westchester county and i was like huh like oh i guess it was a commuter plane and he got off track like i just had no idea i mean it, it, i was so naive i it, it was so unfathomable to that that this could could even happen well i think when you think about the theme of this podcast which is you know no uh <laughs> in on the deepest level if you think about those things as a country as a you know it's a, it's a, it's a no to your security. It's a, it's a, you know, no to feeling safe. And then the pendulum of people collectively persevering and rising above and standing together is the ultimate sort of communal, you know, shared human experience example of, of how you can rise out of something. Yeah. Reframing and reframing whether, you know, there's people, you know, that you're talking to and, um, who have had horrible, you know, personal tragedy or upbringings and they, they rise out of that storm and tragedy. And so, you know, to some extent, I think, you know, we don't need to talk about any more depressing news stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but uh, let's move on but to there's the, uh, an example. That was Kimmy Culp, <laughs> and now we're moving on to the career section. So we're in. <laughs> you found yourself in D.C. We're going to talk about pleasant things. Um, I'm going to cue like some really nice music right now. Yeah. Um, so, um, w- so, so let's go back to after that. Then you were. I, I kind of cut you off to go back to Columbine, but you were, you were in D.C. Well, we kind of. Skipped ahead, but you were there. You were working. Correct. Uh, 9-11 yep. happened. So that was, um, so what then, you went from D.C. to San Francisco. Correct. Right? Yeah. Was there a, what What prompted that? Um, uh, my husband went to business school. Um, we wanted to change and to move to the West Coast. So he started interviewing in San Francisco. Um we took it was really fun. We actually took this break and backpack as packed as if we were college kids over Europe, all over Europe, and That's stayed awesome. in hostels and went on trains and 
We did a global village trip with Habitat for Humanity in this random Polish town. But, you know, being 26, 27 and doing that was was fun and something I'll always remember. And this was after the 9-11. So, so you kind of like took a break from news. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. So I knew I wanted... Um, there was no bureaus in San Francisco. So national news bureau, I wanted to stay in national news now that I had worked in doing national and international stories. And there wasn't that job in San Francisco just didn't exist. So what they said to me um, is, you know, there's a ton in news. There's a lot of freelance work, especially because news is so reactive and people need to hop on planes so I was a freelance producer based in San Francisco and, you know, I'd have a big story and I would be on it for five days and then for two weeks, no one would call and I'd be at home. Sounds like an actor. <laughs> <laughs> that's like my, yeah, that's like it's my wife. Gray, I'm like, sucks. I, yeah. this, I may not get a call for a month. This isn't going to work. I'm looking for a job. Welcome and to this- why I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> no, seriously. It's like you, you're, yeah, it's rough. So you're it on, would just you're off. You're on. You're off. Yeah, yeah. and then of course, like, because I just mind f myself all the time. I'd be like, well, they're not going to call again because the you know interviews and the stuff I shot wasn't good, and you know, and then sure enough, you know, three weeks later they'd say, hey, we're doing this story, and then you know, it happens to be you know in Nevada, we'd love for you to do it. It's a three day shoot, and then so it sort of went like that. Um, and I was working for NBC and um, started to get a lot of work with them. Um, and what happens when you're a journalist is everybody convenes, so you become friends with people at different networks. So I was was really competitive with ABC because I was doing uh, Today's Show and they were Good Morning America. So we would compete over interviews and, you know, who got it first and who got exclusive and I was doing pretty well competing on the West Coast and, and starting to. Is that so ABC, yeah, we were in the field and my competitor came and said, what do you think about going to New York? And so GMA gave me a staff job based in San Francisco. So I flew to New York. Um, Every week? Oh, no, no. I was based in San Francisco. Oh, oh you, you flew there to have Which the meant I was never in San Francisco. Right. Because I told need, me about this. You were flying all I, over the place. All over. Yeah. yeah, all over the Did you the, have to have your interview? Was it with Diane Sawyer or no? Didn't, yes. Um, the first, I, that, what, they got a couple of rungs up the ladder. I had you know. I started freelancing for GMA and um, they... Uh, I didn't interact with her at all. And then I worked on a big story and did an interview for her and got to know her during that story. And so when they offered me the job, I flew to New York and I did very briefly, you know, she came in and, you know, said, you know, we'd love to have you and blah, blah, blah. Um, So, yeah, so I I switched networks. I went to the... (laughs) They think you were like, was it like a... No, it happens all the time. I mean, people, yeah, so... Um, but it's funny because I always described um, morning television like if, if high school football teams played their rival every single morning yeah. at 4 a.m. on the West Coast and 7 a.m. in New York. Because every day, I mean, ruthless in, you know, that time it was Diane Sawyer versus Katie Couric and just 
who's first, who's got the exclusive, no matter if the story was as silly as like the family caught on the roller coaster to something that was really important and yeah. huge and a first interview, you know, yeah. who got Monica Lewinsky or, you know, whatever it was. Um, and talk about a lot of failures because you're only as good as your last get. Right. And uh, there was no way every morning you were going to win. Right. Um, is competitive. You know, it's a, a good upshot of doing this. Uh, the podcast is is um, you hear other people's line of work. Yeah. Because I think actors, definitely myself, are always bitching about like, oh, I'm on and off, and then they did this, and it's like it's always like a, you know, like it's so rough or whatever. And you start, I start to hear your stories of just yeah. like the Columbine story, the 9/11 story, the, you know, f- traveling all over. The news comes in, you got to do this, competing every morning, and I'm like, huh. Maybe acting's not so bad. I'm just pretending to be, you know, such and such today. You know, it, it's it's interesting how every field, and that's also the point of this whole thing, every field, every walk of life, whatever, has its own bag of awesome qualities and and really tough qualities. And if you want to do it on the highest level, yeah. it's going to be really competitive because, you know, my brother always says that if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. It's like... That's tough to wake up every morning and go fight the battle with the opposing network to get the get. I mean, it's, it's got to be like you're always on. You're yeah, always and, like the, aware. and depending on the level of the story, the um, failure, perceived failure, whatever you want to call it, um, you sometimes you couldn't escape it. So you would work on an interview for, you know, I don't know, six months meeting with lawyers and families and publicists. And, you know, when, when people were um, in the news and um, you big sit down interviews that were like, you know, the ones they do at primetime and then on the morning show and you would lose it. And then you would, you know, be beating yourself up. I can't believe I, you know, I let everybody down (laughs) and then you'd be on a plane to the next story and you'd open people magazine and would say, and NBC is exclusive and like 7,000 quotes from NBC. And, you know, you'd be like, Oh, it's right in front of me. And then CNN would run the clip and NBC's exclusive interview with XYZ. (laughs) And you would be like, my bosses are watching this too. It's also so funny to to think about that from your perspective, because, you know, I've obviously heard that phrase and NBC's exclusive doesn't mean anything to me. But it's so funny with you in that job, you're like on the plane, like looking around, like, does everybody think I fail? You know, it's just like, what are the stories that we carry around in our head that we, you know, you're the person next to you sees, oh, NBC is exclusive. It doesn't mean anything. But for you, that's catastrophic. Yeah. And that's interesting just in, you know, talking about perceived failures or, um, you know, leaving it, letting it go. Like, you, you know, you get... In in sports, it was always that way. It's like don't think about the last play. If you th- if you're thinking about that last play, yeah. you're screwed. You know you got to be in the moment right now. As an actor, if you're thinking, if you're doing a play and something goes wrong and you dwell on that, yeah, you are screwed. Yeah. and you're out there with no net, and and so you need to let it go and be in the moment. And a lot of times, and I'm interested to hear this for you. A lot of times, right after those moments, definitely on, on stage and in film, when there's like a quote unquote accident that happens, those we call them happy accidents because that's where the magic comes in. Yeah. Because what happens is you're you're scrambling and you are just forced into this hyper awareness of 
how do we get through this and something magical happens? And has the, have you found that with not getting a story and then have you found like a bounce back or is that not applied? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I would say that in retrospect and looking back, the bounce back for me at least was less in the moment um, and more of a long-term observation because um, eventually, as I stayed in in news, I would go on to transition into work that was much more meaningful. Um, you know, the stories were trial. It was really toxic. And the cost-benefit to— Even if, those, like, exclusive interviews and Yeah, all the benefit was, you know— it, telling a story that doesn't lift people or motivate people or inspire people. Um, You know, it's ratings and it's advertising at the end of the day, if you really break it down. So you certainly would have your stories that you were really proud of, but news was becoming more and more celebrity trial and Michael Jackson. And that's what was rating. So that's where we were focusing our energy on. I hate to cut off a guest, but I need to now. That is the perfect segue into Gleason. Yes. Because, uh, and the goosebumps will come again because that is one of those stories that, you know, you saw my response to it. Yeah. it you know, I couldn't bullshit a response to you about that. I I was just blown away by it. And everybody that I know that saw it felt the same way. And can we can you just tell me a little bit yeah. about that movie and how you got involved? And the bounce. And-, and I think the, the bounce back aspect is in hindsight that news career was difficult and taxing and travel and all the things that we talked about. But what it did is that eventually it would be the building blocks that would allow me to tell the story of one of my best friends. And without that, those years spent learning the craft, even when the story was, you know, I wasn't proud of and building their relationships, all of that happened for a reason. Um, and even when it, you know, was draining or, you know, why am I doing this? There was a reason why, which is, I think Gleason is a huge part of it. Um, so Gleason, one of my best friends at Boulder, Michelle Verisco ended up marrying Steve Gleason. Who, by the way, when you watch the movie, you just love Michelle. I mean, she's like- The best ever. I met her like once, I think at your birthday party and she was really fun. She seemed like, I I didn't, I was just like, I think she was my backup dancer on the table. Yeah, yeah, she is. But but, but when you watch the movie, you just really, uh, in, 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 in an interesting way, and I don't think I'm the only one that felt this, she- she kind of is like, ends up, if there was like a star of the yes. movie, like she's kind of ends up, you, you just, you you link to her so much. But anyway, go on. So Yeah, there's, you know, people say it, but there's no one like her in the world. She is funny and vulnerable and eccentric. And she's just, she, everything, you know, she cuts her own hair. She, you know. <laughs> She just, uh, I believe that she know? like, yeah, has like a bow and arrow that she shoots. <laughs> I believe that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, she just, you know, in college, she used to show up at parties and, you know, fraternity parties and we would all, you know, get all dolled up 
and she would come in and like roller skates and shorts. Like, <laughs> I mean, so she's, she's, there's no one like her truly. Yeah. And so, that comes, oh, well, no, go on. I'm, I'm sure gonna, it comes across. It, well, it comes up. Yeah. What, what I love about it is like, I knew kind of the subject matter and I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with this. It's, yeah. it's going to be heavy and all this. And you come in and, and we'll get more into that, which is the tone and the way you guys put it together. But the movie is funny. It's, yeah. it's funny, it moves, it's got like a spirit to it, it's uplifting, and then it's also goes to the depths, you know, but that's what makes it so great. But anyway, go on, sorry. Yeah, I think the levity was critical because the subject matter is so heavy, which we'll get into. But when you're, you know, making a film, the subjects of the film sort of set the tone. Obviously, a huge part of it is in the post-production, and they're very funny people. Yeah. So that luckily came through, and um happy to hear you, you know, when Love the audience, audience feels it. That's a good thing. So uh, fast forward, Michelle's one of my best friends. She actually... Um, was was here where we live in Pacific Palisades with myself and two other of our very close friends from college. Uh, Steve was with us. Um, we were celebrating New Year's in my kitchen, and you could see him sort of that his his body was different. And when I say his body was different, the background is that Steve was an NFL football player, played in the NFL for nine years, completely unconventional in in size. A, really small guy compared to NFL football players. He was a vegan, you know, long hair, lived in a one-bedroom apartment, acoustic guitar. He's such an interesting Oh, guy. yeah. So, you know, everybody else is like flashy cars and, and you know, Steve is, you know, big biodiesel truck and a one-bedroom, you know, just, yeah. you know, spending his off time biking around the country. So equally eccentric to Michelle. Yeah, yeah they're in a kind of an amazing yeah. couple of pe- of characters together. I yes. mean, they're both like so unique. So Steve, um, that was New Year's. It was then, I, I believe it was January 5th of that year. So five days later, they go to San Francisco and he is diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and given two to five years to live. Um, they were in the process of in in infertility and in vitro. And um, six weeks later, roughly, I think it was around February, um, Michelle finds out that it worked and she's pregnant and they're having a child. And and let me just interject for people who haven't seen the film yet. And, and you got to, I'm telling you, you got to go see it. I, I'll keep telling you, stop this stupid freaking podcast and go see the movie and then come back. It, it the, one thing that's amazing is that he was interested in uh what's it called stop motion photography mm-hmm. so time lapse time lapse mm-hmm. f- photography so so he he had been always had a camera with him and it's always you know filming things so that actual i mean that's what was so amazing to me was that he has that video of him i think videoing himself yes, correct because and and when he goes in the first time not knowing that it's and he comes out and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm feeling a little bit in my shoulder. Yeah, doctor says it could be this, 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 and you know, last case scenario is it could be ALS. ALS yeah, and and it's so heartbreaking knowing that that's what it is from his perspective at the time. That that was just like a, I mean, it just for me kind of zeroed in on. It can happen to any of us. Yeah. Like, like he wasn't, and it's almost he was like be- kind of prolific. I mean, the fact that he picked up the, 
even thought to so it's dock a video. you. It's crazy, That's right? What I'm saying it's 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 the, some of the footage is so personal, and I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. try to stop interrupting you, but I can't help myself because I I really loved it so much and was so affected by it that I, it's hard to not to hold back. But but that's what it was. It was like the footage that you guys got, the intimacy that you guys captured and that they were brave enough to let people see. Uh-huh. And then the way it was cut together and the music and the Pearl Jam and all of it was like, it's it, it, overwhelmingly emotional experience to watch. Sorry, go on. Yeah, so um, Steve began filming himself, um, started recording life lessons um, to his son, who was not born at that point. Eventually, he couldn't hold a camera anymore because his body was deteriorating so quickly. Um, and at all of this point in the process, I was, you know, working, um, doing short form content primarily with foundations. So I wasn't working or filming. I was their friend. So I was, you know, going out for the baby shower and going out for their birthdays. And so experiencing it on a personal level, but not, you know, you weren't involved, involved in, in producing it. So eventually, um, these kind of two young aspiring filmmakers started filming them. And can if, you give their names? Because I felt like they didn't get their due as much. Like they you, deserve so say all names, the credit in the dudes, world. Yeah, they crushed it. David Lee and Ty Minton Small, okay, who um, are remarkable. Remarkable as human beings and young men, and remarkable in their commitment. And at this point, you know. Are they still um, making films right now? They are. are. They're making short films in uh, in Seattle. Narrative or um, like like dra- combination of of both, but I think scripted is what they've been doing. Oh, cool! So, so say their names again, so we could get David a- Lee, Ty Mitten Small, David Lee and Ty Mitten Small. Yeah, M I N T O N. Okay. So these kids, at twenty four years old, literally um, give just film film everything the the and first you got date them from a local film school right were they like down in new orleans like, yeah like, they you know they came in steve was originally going to do a documentary and one of them like was a 30 for 30 espn or whatever yeah he was okay. you know knew he kind of wanted to turn it into a film and and these two kids were um in new orleans uh you know kind of filming when you know in the idea of developing it and then that sort of fell to the wayside, but they stuck around because they had, you know, fallen in love with this family, as anybody who watches the film will understand why. So the first day Ty filmed was the birth of their child. So Michelle, like, that was his sh- first day? shakes hands with him and then, like, sees her vagina, like, five hours later. That sounds like me on the set of Scandal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> and so... um they move in with the Gleasons, end up becoming caretakers so Michelle could sleep one night. I mean, caring for, at, at this point, you know, a, a dying man who needs 24-hour care, caring um, overnight. And they go on these epic adventures. I mean, they hike Machu Picchu and they're tour with Pearl Jam and, you know, the, that's what somehow was so awesome about it was you saw, you know, if you, when you, when they show the clips of him playing in, in college and maybe even from high school and then playing for the saints and he was just a madman. I mean, he was just like, you know, I played football all the way through uh, high school and, you know, special teams, those guys were nuts, you know, they're like kamikazes and he was a kamikaze on the highest level. Like you said, wasn't that big. 
but he was strong and he was fast yeah. and he could hit. And and to see this guy get the diagnosis and then go with his buddies and like it was it was so it was what what was he cool convinced about- Michelle fully pregnant to go in the back of a van for six months and drive across the country. And I say, and they sleep there. They do not stay in hotels and they're with his cousin. So the three of them, and it's a van. It's not like a Winnebago. Right. It's like a sprinter. And they sleep in there with sleeping bags on the side of rivers and, and, you know, these epic adventures, um, you know, together. Well, and that's what it, that's what was so cool is to see him. It's interesting as actors. One of the you know early lessons you hopefully get if you have a decent teacher is all all you know young actors are like, I want to cry. I want to. I got an emotional scene. I'm going to cry. I'm going to really show them I can do this. And what a good teacher will usually say is, you know, sure. If you end up crying, great. But crying is not acting. If you can hold it in. Yeah. And show the dignity of the just fighting against it. You have it underneath, but you're fighting against it. The audience is able to feel emotion. But if you're crying all over the place, no one can cry for you. Yeah. And that's what he as a human does. He is the ultimate warrior who kind of just is like, I don't feel sorry for myself. I'm this is this is my life. This is my thing. He owned it. He did it. And and when you watch it, you it, it it was it was really emotional for me. I, I told you I don't think I've ever. Cru- Luckily, you told me Wayne Gretzky cried like a baby when he saw it. So I I figure hopefully I'm- he doesn't hear this. <laughs> no, but he was emotional. He was emotional. He was emotional. I don't mean cry. yeah, he, but he was emotional. And I remember you telling me that right before I went in, and then I was like, well, I'm not gonna-. And, the most and then, masculine man. And, and then yeah, I just I just like really cried a lot, and I don't typically cry at a film. And I now think that means that I could have been one of the greatest NHL players <laughs> because Wayne and I, you know, we cry the same. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's one of those things because it's... He, he, what was more profound than watching that at a, at a screening was the um, Hollywood agents <laughs> who you thought... Did it, are they human? Is there any emotion any within that body? Yeah. These guys who are just hardcore cutthroat and to see Hollywood agents weeping, that's really something. Because they saw themselves in him because yeah. he was a warrior. You know, like it, it's that that's the beauty of this movie yeah. is that like, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like the, the you know, most macho guys guy, whatever, this is the movie for you. Yeah. And it, and and. Let's talk about Michelle because she she's really the unsung hero. Of, yeah, or, or unless you were on a team. No, that so um, so the interesting thing about Michelle is my impetus for getting involved. Ty and David have been filming. I go to visit in Idaho. They're in a garage looking at you know video on their on their screens with their headphones and their you know beer cans bottles all around as these 20 year old kids living in Idaho on the lake for the summer. And we're like, you know, what are you going to do with the footage? And they start showing me the clips and the best of, and I'm like freaking blown away because, you know, you're only, your stories are only as good as your access. And the relationship that they had created with Steve and Michelle, the cameras had completely vanished. 
And so the intimacy, I'd never seen anything like it, never seen anything no, like it in Oprah anywhere. And I'm like, this is crazy. So went in and talked to Steve and Ty and David and Michelle and we're like, let's do this. Like, let's bring this to LA and make a, a film and um, reach the widest audience possible and, you know, crush it. Like, you know. Which you totally did. And it, I mean- the movie got real response, not just from me. It got response from the people that kind of, in quotes, count for a movie to get response from. It went to Sundance. It was a huge crowd favor. And, and it was um, it was an unprecedented sale, right, to Amazon? Yeah. Like, are you allowed to say that figure? Can I say that or no? I don't think we're allowed okay. to say the figure, okay. so it was but a, it, it was a, a, it was big, a nice, num- big number for documentaries. But yeah. a good number for a documentary. Yeah. And... and um, and then they got behind it with, and actually I want to talk about this. They, you know, as much as you want to or don't want to, when I kind of became aware of it, it was, it was, um, I remember seeing it was on the short list for Oscars. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what ended up winning that year. And my opinion with regard to the Oscars is I think it's, you know, I'd rather win a Lifetime Achievement Award yeah. than the actual award because I think there's so much politics. There's no, they're not really politics. You can't deny the people that get those Lifetime Achievement Awards. Yeah. That's like a body of work that goes on, you know. Yeah. But the year to year, it's going to come up to favor and opinion and whatever is happening at the time. And I have no idea. Should it have? It wasn't nominated, but it's sh- shortlisted. It, it was shortlisted. Yeah. And I remember talking to you after that and- you know, this is something for people to hear out there. Again, I'm sitting with someone who is, you know, super successful, super prolific, uh, passionate, intelligent, all of it. She gets involved with this film. They kill it. They crush it on the level that I'm telling you cannot be crushed anymore. And and then all of a sudden, so it's a huge success, right? But then all of a sudden it was like, bloop, you're not on the Oscar nomination ballot. Yeah. And you said, when I saw you at one point, and I feel like you had like a little, like I, I would see you and I felt like you were, you know, it was like it hit you. It was like, it was just done yeah, in a way. And it pisses me off <laughs> because it, to, to, to do all the things that it did. And that's, I mean, that's also part of the reason why I'm like, I mean, I'm telling people, like, I, I, I hope that, that more than three people listen to this podcast so that it, it people go and see this movie. It's like, that's the kind of movie that needs to be seen. That's the kind of movie that is about the stuff we were talking about with 9-11 and people coming together and, and like, you know, reframing and, and, and like, making it a great thing. It's, it's everything that's right about storytelling is in that movie. Yeah, and, uh, you know... Um and I'll talk about that and then quickly go back to your your question about Michelle and talk about Michelle a little bit. But um, it was interesting because certainly um, the anticipation of the potential of that, I mean, is, is significant on many levels to think that, wow, this this film and this group of people I love could, you know, be at the Oscars nominated, yeah. you know, crazy. Um, and... Um, you know, when it happened, it was funny. One of my good friends who had a film that, that, um, you know, got close to a nomination called and she's like, you know what, that, you know, she used a different word. 
That stuff is never what is correct. By the be. way, I've been throwing f bombs. Yeah, all the yeah. Time. So she's like, she's like that. That shit never measures up. And she's like, let's get real. You know, documentaries are the stepchild of the Oscars. Like, you'd be pushed to the back of the room. Yeah. They'd say yada yada. You're definitely not invited to the Vanity Fair party. Yeah. And she said, but more importantly. You told me early on why you were making the film and never once did you say to win awards. You felt that the story and the team felt as a story is an amazing team um, of people, our director and our producers and a lot of people in this this community um, was, you know, that the story would move people. And it sounds cliche, but it's but it's true. And of course, the the anticipation and the potential and the romanticism of that idea, without question, Welcome there was- Welcome to my world. It's like they get in your head and they make you think you want something. You're like, that's not what I signed up for anyway. Yes. So, yes. So, um, you know, without, without question, it was a letdown. Not as much as I would have anticipated, you know, sort of taking it as a, you know, failure or perceived failure- but um, you look back and and reflect and, you know, we, we had a tweet, I think it was that month to the, you know, at hashtag Gleason movie. And this guy said, um, all right, Steve, I, Michelle, I want to thank you. Uh, or no, they said, I watched your film last night. I haven't talked to my two, my dad in two years. I called him and we talked for hours. Thank you. Hashtag. Amen. And it was stories like that that sort of poured in. By or, the way, what a yeah. great father-son oh, storyline. Yeah. There were so many storylines. I can't even begin to even talk about them all right here. But yes. So that on. was, um, and so there were so many beautiful things that came out of it. Yes, that was, you know, really hard for everyone involved. And we're collectively an insanely group, a competitive group of people. You know, my yeah. partner producing, one of producing partners, but... Um, Scott Vegeta was an NFL football player. Steve yeah. was an Michelle's competitor. Everybody, you know, Seth Gordon, who's, you know, the clay are every, everybody involved. Ty and David, you know, of course, uh, driven competitive people. Um, but in hindsight, and to go back to Michelle, there was a point within the journey, a big part of my, I think impetus in making the film. I believed in the power of story, but it was also a way for me personally to help, if you will. Because how do you help your friend in New Orleans who has a newborn and a husband who's dying in front of her and barely has a minute to talk? So all of a sudden, you know, they had this vision of sharing their story, and I was with and them, and I'm my skill set, and I'm like, again, this is. Um, about halfway through, Michelle no longer wanted to do the documentary, um, was sick of it, wanted cameras to stop following her, and was was almost against the idea of it. Yeah. Um, and was exhausted by the media, was exhausted by the exposure, and um, they had done a bunch of press, and, and I'm like, uh, all right, so now I'm working full-time on a film that... That's the subject of friend. who's my best friend is pissed off and doesn't want to do like <laughs> super awkward. And she would like get on a call and I would, I like our director would call and say like, okay, next time she, you know, as bad as the sounds, it's how, you know, accessing great film. She's crying. If she can put up the camera and talk to the camera and stuff. And she'd be like, you effing ca- No, no. <laughs> like, and so like, she didn't Michelle, want to show her that's art. Great. Just, just, just put your head a little to the right when you cry next yeah. time. <laughs> so anyhow, um, they uh, fast forward. 
we get into Sundance. Now, all of a sudden, this group of friends, Tom Livia, who's uh, our college friend's husband, Thomas McKeishan, who's our other college friend, these guys are advising on business and legal, which they've never done on a film, mm. Scott. So all of a sudden, this group of friends is like, our film's going to Sundance and we're uh, all, you know, going to Park City. Go buy some parkas. Yeah. Some and, um, and, you know, and this seeing the reaction, everybody seeing it in person. And then for Michelle, the great story is that her art is, yeah. is part of the narrative. Her art's great. Her art's amazing. So um, they we had a party on Main Street, a premiere party, which was great. Um, Chase Sapphire loved the film and said, we'll pay for you guys to have a premiere party. We're like, awesome, because we certainly couldn't afford to have a big party on Main Street at Sundance. So... Um, did they do it on that little glass thing on the, or did they do it at a, a kind of, it was, oh, anyway, I can't remember the name matter, of the venue. Yeah. So um, we're on a call with William Morris and brainstorming and everybody says, what about Michelle's art being part of the party? Sort of, you know, every, they've got designers and event planners. So Michelle takes the courage, never shown her work, blows it up large format, frames it, which anybody who's ever been to the freaking frame store knows it's outrageously expensive, ships it, which you can imagine the cost of that. This is all like her own. Nobody's paying for this. We have not sold the film. Um, And they do an art installation for our premiere party after hundreds of people have watched the film. And there's this big party. It's this gorgeous wall with all of her art. So literally, we're hanging it, and we're like, uh, what's the pricing? We're, like, making it up. She's like, should I say, like, uh, a thousand? I'm like, no, no, no. I can't do that. <laughs> she sold every single piece of art. And people were walking around Sundance going up to her. I'd like to cuss. I mean, she literally That's became an awesome. artist at that festival. But more or equally important, important was people, as you noted, were so attracted to her in the film and lured in by her honesty and vulnerability and rawness and courage and, you know, comedic (laughs) timing, everything that makes her great. Um, She had a moment, you know, because so much had been Steve kind of in the spotlight. And all of a sudden people wanted to hear her story. How did you do it? Story is a caretaker. I can't believe how raw you are. I've been struggling with this. So she really was empowered and had a voice. And now she's traveling to film festivals. She's, you know, has a studio for her art. She She did a ton of of panels. So where um, there was this period, what it ended up being was, um, I I think Michelle would say, this very unexpected gift for somebody who had, you know, built this resistance. And there's been a lot of interest for a scripted version of the film. And we've talked about it, um, you know, Steve and Michelle and sort of the the um, some of the friends who were part of the production team. And we're like, you know, thinking about whether to pursue it. And one of the main things we said was, God, that was fun. You know, yeah. you know, Michelle and I got to, mm-hmm. you know, travel around the country and do festivals and you know, we were, Steve, you know, was, got to be with us in, you know, all these cities, you know, Seattle and, um, and, and you worked together with some of your best friends and created something. So almost like the biggest point and, you know, thinking about the scripted was, in hindsight, it was a lot of fun. I mean, while we were doing it, there was like, 
you know, blowups and the, yeah. and dispute and all that, you know, but in the end, it ended up being, um, you know, I think not only rewarding for everybody to see how the film impacted people, um, but for us to experience that together. Yeah, it's it's like, it, that's what my friends and I always say, was like the whole point of all of it is like, find your people. Like, find, yeah. you know, you, you and working with your friend. That's the same thing for me. All of the projects that I've done with my friends, which are generally the ones that I've made no money, probably lost money. Yeah. You know, just like spent money doing them. And those are the ones that, you know, I don't even think I'm going to be thinking about my career on my deathbed. But if I were, those are probably the ones that I'm going to be thinking about. The, the, those were the experiences yeah. of the, like, in a way, the highlights of my my career are all the ones with my friends. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, the other ones, like, and that's what I say about the whole Oscar thing. Ab- absolutely. It'd be great to be nominated, to win an Oscar, all that stuff. But at the, at the end of the day, those are just accomplishments. They're like possessions that I think are empty in and of themselves. It's all of the getting to them, which mm-hmm. is actually the cool part. Yeah. And, um, and like, you know, anybody I talk to that's, you know, kind of accomplished a few things, um, they all say the same thing. You know, it's like, they're like, oh yeah, did I do that? Like, they don't really remember that. It's like, it's more the, the, the battle and the journey. It sounds totally cliche, but it's, it's really, it's kind of true, you know? Well, I think that you, um, there's a perception that somehow you'll be fulfilled in the accomplishment and then quickly the moment diminishes and then your question is what's next? You, Yes. And yeah. you just rem- made me think of one of the most poignant moments for me. Oh, there were so many, but this was one in the film that I really related to as an actor in particular because you, you're somewhat in the public eye um, was when they... It, it was just, it was... The statue? The statue. Yeah. They they dedicate the statue, the wave statue, when after Katrina, Steve came back and punted uh, and blocked a punt in the game right after Katrina when they just the reopened Falcons the Superdome. Yeah. And, and so they call it the wave and they dedicate it to him. He gets brought out there. There's a ton of fanfare and, you know, everybody's, you know, taking pictures and the whole thing. And it's like hard cut to him in the bathroom people having to help him with this, just this most. Yeah. He cute. like, yes. Poops himself. Yeah. And, yeah. It, it's, and, and, you know, you watch it and you're so, I was so choked up because you go like, the where's everybody, where's yeah. everybody now? Yeah. You know, like that's not his life getting that statue. Yeah. That's, that's a little tiny little bit of the iceberg. That's not his life. And that that's really the whole point of why I wanted to even do this whole yeah. thing, because everybody that I know that I'm like, oh, wow, they do, you know, I mean, you're a perfect example. Like, I'm like, wow, you've, you know, you start to, when you start to scratch the surface on anybody yeah. that's done anything, you're like, they paid their dues. You know, they went through their ups, they went through their downs. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they didn't just, you don't just, you're not born and just plopped right here. It's like, that's just not the way it is. You know, and so hopefully, um, I don't think it will be to the degree of like Gleason with that, the power that that has just in this one nugget of two hours. But I mean, that's kind of my hope for this whole podcast is that someone is listening to it either 
you know, soon or 10 years from now. And they're just like, they hear something and they go, oh, cool. I'm struggling with blah, blah, blah. And Kimmy Culp went through blah, blah, blah. And that makes me feel like I'm less alone in this. And so I'm going to fight through another day. And then hopefully they get, you know, that's just like, literally, that's just the whole point. So I think there's, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, does your internal quality of life measure up with your external quality of life, external being like how you're perceived in the world. And I'll never forget it because I've struggled off and on with depression and anxiety my, my whole life. And, um, I was involved in a um, nonprofit and um, on their sort of board of ambassadors, advisors. And I had this big dinner at my house and really interesting, dynamic people. It was a Jeffersonian dinner and big conversation, you know, beautiful flowers everywhere. And, um, you know, the really, really interesting and a successful evening. So I did a fair amount of speaking as the host of this this dinner and people had flown in for it. And um, so I had done my hair and I was dressed up and the food and the flowers and the people and this, you know, global yada yada conversation. And at one point, my son came down in his like jammies, which uh, who doesn't love a kid out of the bath in their jammies (laughs) and like hugged me. And um, I had to um, get on a plane the next morning. Um, That's when I was, was doing the short form content for foundations and I like took a shower and I crawled up in a ball because I'm like, I can't like I just at that time was struggling so much with depression. And I was so exhausted by what felt like the facade and the act of because I had to be on because I made yeah. this commitment because my parents flew in because and I could turn it on. But I was struggling so much and I w- looked on my phone or my email, whatever. And if the friend who's really successful said, who was at the dinner said, I'm just in awe of you. You really have it all. You know, she's like, you know, your son and you're speaking there. And I'm like, guess who didn't see me like bawling in the shower and getting on the plane with red eyes. Cause inside I feel exhausted and anxious and like, you know, the outside doesn't measure up with the inside. And, um, and, you know, I certainly don't always feel that way, but I think a lot of us, sometimes you're presenting yourself in the world, but inside you're like, do do I, you know what I mean? Like, do I measure up? Am I I a sham? Is this? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for, that's so honest uh, to say. And second of all, you know, I've told you, I feel like, you know, we're always looking at you guys like, man, they got it. Like, it seems pretty fucking good over there. You know, like, we're like, we've got never had a bad time at your house. You guys are the best hosts ever. Like I, I walk in, I, I told Graham, I'm like, I walk in and I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, I love it. I love it. So it's like, you know, it's so interesting and kind of proves my point yeah. that it literally doesn't matter because, you know, you could look at people and you go like, oh, well, that person, you know, he's the the CEO of this and he's going around in, in you know, uh, a private jet or whatever, but like he's evil or whatever. You look at you guys and you're like, it, it, it looks it looks pretty good and you're cool yeah. and you're nice and you're pretty self-aware and you're going and you still that, you, you know, like it doesn't matter, I think. And I think it's just kind of because we're human. So we're all 
we're all trying to figure out what, you know, we're all, we're just trying to figure it out. Like I certainly don't. I mean, this whole thing is literally me. Like, I don't know. I hope people agree with my taste. For me, I'd listen to something like this, but I have a feeling, I have no idea if anybody's going to listen. I'm basically, I'm not going like, I have the answer. I'm basically going like, I don't know what the, I have some ideas of what I think maybe, you know, could be this, could be that. It's just so, it's, it's so interesting to me to just, to, to, to talk with people that are intelligent and, and sensitive and have like a particular take on the world and just kind of like pick your brain and go like, huh, okay, Kimmy does this, that's what she thinks. And like, that's interesting. I'm going to steal that. And then. You know, she does this, this, and oh, she said, oh, that's a good way to look. You know what I mean? Like, that's all, that's basically what I'm doing here. Yeah. This whole, you know, and and I certainly feel that juxtaposition of like, you know. I think uh, we all do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we all do within our own communities. I think I do, I think as an actor, it's a very bizarre phenomenon that you are like, I mean, for the most part, I could walk around here. Nobody gives a shit. But I could be in a random spot, like in America, or even, you know, somewhere else because of the power of television. And because, you know, someone saw me in something, then they they go up and like you're in the middle of an argument or you're yeah. in the middle of like telling your kids, Real like, no, life. You, know, you, yeah. you know, you can't get that. You can't get the thing. You know, it's like, we just got you, you know, ice cream. You're not getting this. And someone comes up, they're like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, it's it's just it's a bizarre juxtaposition of facade and reality. Yeah. And I guess, you know, my whole decision to not really edit this is part of that, hopefully, like crushing that. Like, yeah. You don't always know what you're going to say next. I don't know what I'm going to say next. I'm going to be inarticulate. I'm going to say some dumbass thing over the course of each hour and whatever. Yeah. Fuck yourselves if you don't <laughs> want to listen to it. That's kind you know what I mean? That's kind of the the point of it. And I I, I just I really appreciate how insightful you are and how honest you are and open and you you just it's like you're a gem. You really are. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess, oh, let me just ask you this before yeah. we go. Anything you're working on that you would like, that it would help if people, uh, obviously Gleason movie, you can get on Amazon Prime Correct. for free. Correct, Amazon Prime. You can probably get it anywhere. Where, where else could you get it if you want iTunes, to? Xbox, Amazon Prime. We love Amazon, so get it on Amazon <laughs> um, And now I'm working for Amazon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They're uh, great. What else? What other... Um, I'm Anything working else? on uh, being a present mother to my three awesome kids. Um, for somebody who's been a constant a doer, doer, achiever, achieve, as we discuss the next goal. So that's really been my focus. Um, and just to say, she's selling herself short because she was an awesome mom before <laughs> she kind of had this thing in the fall where she said, I'm going to go. She was always pretty darn involved at the school and the whole thing, but go on. So I joined um, a board that's based in New York called Girl Rising. Girl Rising was a documentary film with a big global social action campaign. And the basic notion is um, in the developing world, half the population isn't educated, which is girls. (laughs) And how could the world change if they were? So whether it's um, the economy, um, you know, GDP, international, you know, global relations, having women leaders at the table. And 
security. So there's there's um, all sorts of facets, and they believe, as I believe, that there's power in story. So when a girl can see on a screen a girl that looks like her and talks like her and lives in a village like her succeeding and being educated and doing so when a policymaker in India can see that when a teacher can see that, wait, I can have these girls. And so they've used storytelling in a really, really interesting way. They went on to do insane things like they did the CNN special with Michelle Obama, same topic. Um, the voiceovers in their film were like Meryl Streep, uh, Alicia key. I mean, Really, slackers. really slackers. slackers yeah. Okay. So they're trying to, you know, the, the work they're doing is incredible. And at this point, it's it's how to scale it. So I'm working with Girl Rising and um, hopefully I'll be traveling, you know, to one of the countries they're they're working on um, in, you know, over the next year and, and be there while they're filming and, you know, meeting with educators and policymakers. So that is um, something I'm excited about. That's awesome. It's the advisory role. Um, one of my best friends to go back to the, uh, is the head of the board. And, um, and it allows me to be a mom, but keep the wheel spinning. And then it's really creating the space for um, whatever the next thing whatever is. the next thing is. But I'm not in a hurry. Um, right now, it, it feels good to be have life be a little more quiet and present yeah that's great yeah that's so awesome thank yeah. you for being here today yeah. i think we're gonna thank you there yeah